Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So when it comes to the factors that lead to success, there's a tendency in folks to discount the role of luck. We like to think we're the complete masters of fortune, that we can control everything that happens to us and make our own luck. But by not giving luck its due, we actually prevent ourselves from effectively managing this force so we can experience success in the long run. My guest today has written a book on the math of success, skill, and luck. His name is Michael Mobison, and he's the author of the book, The Success Equation, Untangling Skill and Luck in Business, Sports, and Investing. Today on the show, Michael and I discuss the philosophy and math of luck, which activities in life rely more on luck than skill to be successful, and what you can do to manage luck like a poker player in order to be more successful in life. Lots of great practical takeaways in this episode. You won't want to miss it. After you listen to the show, check out the show notes at aom.is slash luck for resources where you can explore uh, more about this topic. All right. Well, Michael Mobison, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. Great to be with you. Uh, So your book is uh, The Success Equation. And this is a fascinating book because it takes a look at the role of skill and luck in success or failure across a, variety, a wide variety of domains from business, investing to sports. And I think it's an interesting topic because I feel like us Americans particularly, we like to discount luck. We like to talk about how any success we have is because you know we worked hard, we developed our talent, um, and we made our own luck. Um, why is it that we discount luck so much? And why is it important for businesses and, and individuals to take into account luck? Yeah, Brett, it's a great question. And I have to say, in some realms, you know, hard work probably is the key to success. If you think about, for example, some elements of athletics, if you're a sprinter or, you know, or you're a rower, um, or even some kinds of businesses, like if you're a plumber, you know, most of your success is going to be by dint of your capabilities and your hard work. But as you point out, in other domains, there are huge doses of luck, especially things, for example, that have social processes attached to them, you know, the success of a book or a song or, or a film or something like that, and uh, or even businesses, like you said, you know, Bill Gates in, in an alternate universe, would Bill Gates be Bill Gates? And the answer is, is all, in all likelihood, um, probably not. So in those instances, as you said, we have a very difficult time uh, understanding the, the substantial contribution of luck. And I think the key to this is actually a psychological process. And there's some fascinating research done by neuroscientists who've been able to pinpoint part of your left um, uh, module in your brain where they have a module they call the interpreter. The job of the interpreter is to close cause and effect loops, right? So if I give you an effect, some sort of an outcome, your mind's going to come up with a story to explain it. And basically, the interpreter doesn't know anything about luck, right? Whenever you see a good outcome, 
you assume something good was behind it, typically skill. And you see a bad outcome, you assume that something bad was behind it, typically a lack of skill. So I think that I think we have a natural tendency, just as humans, to to, to attach skill more skill than we probably should. And again, the significance of luck is different by different domains, but. I think that's the fundamental problem. The last thing I'll say is, you know, if you really sit down with thoughtful people, especially thoughtful, successful people, um, almost always they acknowledge the role of luck in their process. They just understand that certain forks in the road, they had gone the other direction, they probably wouldn't be where they are today. So it is important for us to, to sit back from time to time, especially if you've enjoyed some success, and, and A, be grateful, and B, to recognize that, uh, you know, that luck has probably smiled on you along the way. Right. Be humble about it. Um so let's start off with some definitions. I mean, how do you define luck in your work? Because I've uh, read a whole, like surprisingly in philosophy, there's like a whole segment of philosophy dedicated to luck and they have all these like really complicated definitions of luck. Um, how do you define it in your book? Yeah, Brett, super important. And I got to say, as you said, um, you know, it spills over to philosophy very quickly. But the definition I settled on was one, and, and by the way, even things I'll mention too, words like luck and chance and fortune are things we tend to use interchangeably day to day, but of course they have different etymologies. The definition I settled on was by a, by a philosopher, and he basically said luck, is, luck exists when three conditions are in place. One, it operates for an individual organization, so it happens to you or your favorite sports team or your com- a company. Second is it can be good or bad. So um, I don't mean to suggest that it's symmetrical because it's not, but there's a possible good luck and possible bad luck. And third, and I think this is sort of the pivotal one, it's reasonable to expect a different outcome could have occurred. So if we could somehow rewind the tape of time and play it again, we could very, it would be very reasonable to see a different outcome uh, unfold. And so when those three conditions are in place, you can sort of check those off. I think you can suggest that, that luck, is, uh, luck is around. And another way to think about it, maybe even a more basic way to think about it, and, and this, especially when you're communicating to younger people, for instance, or giving people advice, is to think about what is in your control and what is not in your control. So if it's in your control, it's not going to be luck, right? Because that's, you know, it's your effort, it's your preparation, it's your hard work. Um, if it's out of your control, we'll, we'll call that uh, the realm of luck. And so as, as, you know, always good advice for everybody, whether they're athletes or business people, is to focus on what you can control and do everything you can to succeed and to recognize what's out of your control um, is beyond your capabilities and you should take it with some sort of a, you know, reasonable philosophical attitude. Right. Um, so how is, uh, I mean, we often associate luck with like gambling, right? And gambling we associate with sort of randomness and chance. How is, is luck the same as randomness or is like randomness just a part of luck? Yeah, we talked about it a little bit of a different, you know, um, we talked about randomness more on a system level and luck on a more individual level. So, for example, you just pointed out a really good example. Let's say we have, you know, a bunch of people in a room, we flip coins, and we ask them to call heads or tails. You know, if we have 30, let's say 50 or 60 people, we know statistically that it's very likely that one person will get four or five in a row correct. So that's the element of randomness we know ahead of time. If you happen to be the guy that calls them right, I'm going to call you lucky, right? So, so randomness, I think of more as a uh, higher level, like more of a system level, and luck would be more of an individual uh, situation. So that's how I try to parse those two things. But these are, I mean, you're raising really important issues, and I think thinking about these things carefully can provide some insights to allow you to to understand the whole concept more effectively. Gotcha. Um, so you make this interesting case in the book. It's like when I li- when I listen to you talk, talking about what you define as luck and what you define as skill, you know, skill is what we have in our control. Luck is what's not in control. I intuitively think, well, if I increase my skill, it means I have more control 
over a particular domain because I have more knowledge and ability to, uh, you know, to act in that domain. And so luck decreases. But you make this counterintuitive <laughs> argument that uh, actually as skill increases, uh, luck plays more of a role. Why is that? Right. Yeah, Brett, it's super interesting, right, and, and somewhat counterintuitive. Um, I want to be super super clear that it's not my idea. It was um, I learned this from Stephen Jay Gould, a famous biologist, but we called it the paradox of skill. And the basic idea, as you said, um, is that it can be the case skill goes up, luck becomes more important. And the way to, to um, sort of understand that is to think about skill across two dimensions. The first is absolute skill. And I think we can say, you know, pretty confidently as we look around the world, the level of absolute skill has never been higher than it is today. You know, athletics is a great example. We know, for example, athletes um, that perform against the clock or moving asymptotically toward physical limits, certainly in the world of business, certainly in the world of investing. So that's the first dimension. But the second one is the poor, probably the more important one for distinguishing yourself, and that is relative skill, right, which is how good is the very best person versus the average person in that same um, uh, business or uh, activity. And there we see quite consistently that relative skill is actually going down. So one concrete example that Gould gave that we repeated was um, baseball batting averages. So it turns out the average batting average in baseball has been pretty consistent over time, around 260 to 270. And that's because both the hitters and the pitchers are improving roughly in lockstep. But it turns out the last player to hit over 400 offensive player was Ted Williams, which was 1941. And the reason that was so long ago is because there was a much higher standard deviation of batting average because there was a higher standard deviation of skill. So over time, the, the capabilities of the players have become more uniform, which means they offset. And so luck has become more important. So the paradox of skill basically says, think about skill, not only absolute levels of skill, but also relative skill. And if relative skill is narrowing, luck actually may be more important than dictating outcomes. So it's a really, it's a counterintuitive thought. Where it shows up the most vividly is probably the world of investing. And you, you know, I'm sure you've heard people say, you know, markets are random walks and things like that. And, you know, the market looks like a big casino or gambling. I don't think those metaphors are, are necessarily totally true, but the, this idea that Basically, the prices reflect most of the information out there. It means that, in effect, it becomes really difficult to beat it. So it feels like a little bit like a random game. It's, again, not because of a lack of skill of investors. It's actually because of a surfeit of skill of investors. They basically offset, and, and luck becomes the uh, determining factor. All right. So if people are at the same level of skill, high level of skill, then, yeah, luck is going to determine whether. So it's like in football, right? You have two equally you know, uh, sized teams that are just equally talented, but maybe the, the ball fumbles, you know, for some whatever reason, you don't know why that's going to determine the game and not particularly the skill of the player. Exactly. And that's a perfect, you know, that's a great example where it might just be, you know, uh, you know, a fumble, there's a fumble that gets recovered by team A versus team B. It could be a weird bounce of a punt. It could be some unusual thing that under normal circumstances would be um, relatively uh, in, unimportant in the course of events, but for that particular game, because there's such an equal match. And, you know, you see it in professional sports, by the way, the other way to think about this is almost all professional sports and probably a more vivid example than the NFL, even it would be something like the NBA, is that they become very international, right? So these are you're getting the best athletes from around the world. There's big money. The training techniques have gotten quite uniform. The coaching techniques have gotten quite uniform. So best practices spill over very quickly with the very best athletes. And so by almost by definition, you get uh, effectively this parity in skill. And then again, the bounce of the ball uh, becomes the determining factor in success or failure. Gotcha. So in the book, you talk about how um, uh, st- statisticians have been able to uh, 
guess, categorize different domains on this sort of luck continuum skill. So, you know, some activities require more luck, some activities require more skill. How are they able to do that? Yeah, and so this is a little trick um, from the world of statistics. And, uh, you know, they sort of, the, the statisticians call it the Pythagorean theorem of statistics. And I won't get too fancy into it, but basically the, the, the theorem is, the idea is that if you look at the variance, so basically the, the range of differences for an independent distribution A, and you add the variance for independent distribution B, that equal the variance of independent distribution C, right? So A plus B equals C, you're looking at the variance, right, that ranges. And so variance of A, we'll call it skill, right? We'll call that variance um, distribution skill. Luck, we'll call it B. And then C will be the outcome. So what these guys do is kind of cool, right? So they look at the variance of actual outcomes. So, for example, the win-loss, the, the variance in win-loss records for the NBA, let's pick as an example. And we know with statistical modeling what the variance would look like if it was pure luck. In other words, if a coin toss determine the wins or losses of every game. So instead of uh, the two teams playing against the Warriors, don't play the Cavaliers, they just go out in the middle of the court, flip a coin, whoever calls the right wins, and they go back and shower and go home. So we know that distribution. So in other words, we know two out of the three, we know what the empirical outcomes are of a season. We know what luck would look like. And the difference between this, that luck and the outcome is basically the contribution of skill. So it's a kind of a neat little trick to allow us to get some sense of the relative contributions of skill. By the way, by applying that, you can rank order, for example, professional sports leagues based on one season of performance. And it turns out that North American sport with the most uh, skill is the NBA. So the NBA shows as being the most skill-laden or maybe more accurately the farthest away from luck. And then it's Major League Baseball, uh, the NFL, and then ice hockey, the NHL is the sport that's actually the closest to being random. Now, baseball and football are interesting because, of course, baseball teams play 10 times as many games as, as football teams, right? So they have huge sample sizes. And you can see baseball really does have a lot of parity because if you win – I don't know, 57 or 58 percent of your games, you're almost locked uh, in the, into the playoffs, right? So it's a sport where even the very best teams rarely win 60 percent of their games over the course of a full season. Gotcha. And that 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 emphasis on sample size is important in trying to figure this stuff out because you talk about in the book that um, if you don't have a, a large enough sample size, you can fool yourself into thinking that you won because of skill, uh, but not luck. Totally, Brett. It's a great point. So let's first say that in, in activities that are almost all skill, sample size becomes much less important, right? So if you and I sprint against Usain Bolt, I think we can safely say one race will tell us all we need to know about the relative skill of our, 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 um, our relative skill. But when, when there's only a dollop of skill and there's a lot of luck, as you point out correctly, you need to increase the sample size to start to understand or detect the signal from the skill. So yeah, the, the sensitivity of the sample size that you're looking at, the number of events is, is highly conditional on how much skill is in that particular activity, right? So it does, again, it runs the gamut from a relatively small sample size doing the job to needing quite a bit of uh, time or sample size to be able to discern uh, skill from luck. Right. And you talk, you use poker as a good example of this. Um, you know, a, a beginner can play poker and don't, doesn't really know anything about, you know, the skill of poker playing and when, and they might leave thinking, hey, I'm a great poker player. But as you allow that a beginner to play more and more uh, games, um, his lack of skill will start showing up. Yeah, exactly. And you think about even professional poker players, uh, you know, it's not a glamorous job if you're a professional poker player because you have to you have to sit and play for many, many hours on end for your skill to be sure that your skill reveals itself. So it's you have to slog it out. And, and again, your skill, your, your better skill will ultimately prevail. 
But uh, as you point out, for very short, you know, just a few hands or what have you, there's a lot, a lot of variants that can overwhelm even your your skillful edge. So uh, this idea that uh, we can sometimes fool ourselves into thinking, you know, we're being skillful when it was actually luck would determine our success. Any examples from the world of business uh, or sports that highlight this tendency that we have to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the matrix I, that I love, and it's, it's not for me, it's this guy Paul Shoemaker and Jay Russo came up with this, is they have a matrix on process versus outcome. And, uh, you know, you can imagine the columns being good outcome, bad outcome, and the process is, you know, the rows being good and bad process. So if you have a good process and a bad outcome, you know, it's bad luck, and, you know, pick yourself up and dust yourself off and do it again. If you have a good process and a good outcome, that's, you know, deserves success. But the trickier column is, is that you point out, is bad process, good outcome, right? And that's one where you start to trick yourself into thinking that you actually know what you're doing. Bad process, bad outcome, of course, is sort of poetic justice of failure, right? So, so this idea of bad process and good outcome, you have to be very mindful about that. I think we see a lot in, you know, there's an example I mentioned in the book of a friend of mine who's, a, who's actually a sports executive, and he's playing blackjack in Vegas. And, you know, he's sitting around the table, and this guy is Delta 17, right? So if you know in poker, <laughs> blackjack, pardon me, if you're Delta 17, you're supposed to sit on your hand, and the guy, you know, sort of weighs the ways in the hit and and that you know the dealer sort of pauses and flips the card and turns over a four right so it makes the guy's hand and he wins and you know so the crowd breaks out and high fives and so forth but and the, and the dealer actually says to him uh good hit right and and you're saying to yourself well of course that's a, it's a ridiculous play because if you do that a hundred times or a thousand times of course you're going to be assured of losing but in the very short run you're going to see this uh, success that comes as a consequence of a poor decision you see it a lot actually in professional sports as well where um, it's actually almost the other way around, which also often teams don't do what they're supposed to do. Uh, one classic example is going forward on fourth down in the NFL. Um, there now is a lot of work on this and statistically valid work showing that teams should be going for it more than they actually do, and they and they tend not to, so it's a bad process. And so you, you actually don't see what the outcomes would be had they done the proper strategy, but it's, it's very interesting to see that there are a lot of cognitive you know, um, biases that still prevent teams from doing what they should probably ultimately do. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. 
Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money in things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Right. I also like how you talked about in the book that this uh, tendency for us to tell these narratives about, you know, the cause and effect uh, leads to these sort of um, like when companies hire rock star CEOs or a team brings in a, a, a hot, you know, wide receiver and they think this is going to change the game. And because they were successful in this other domain or this other company, they're going to do the same here and it doesn't work out. And in fact, it's an utter failure. Yeah, that's super interesting. That is work done by Boris Groisberg up at Harvard Business School. And, you know, it's basically, uh, it's called, the book he wrote is called Chasing Stars. And he documents in sort of devastating fashion that this idea of hiring a superstar from another organization tends to be almost always universally disappointing. And, you know, the main, there are a couple reasons for it. One is that superstar may have just been lucky at his, at his or her prior organization, right? So there, there may be just a classic regression toward the mean. But also the second thing, I think what he emphasized is that you know, you're changing organizations, you're changing structures, and as a consequence, the things that were maybe probably very helpful for you in your prior organization may not be in the same place in your new organization. Um, you mentioned, uh, I'll, I'll finish on the football thing, which is really interesting. You pointed out wide receivers trading, changing for teams. 
And it, it is the case that their performance tends to degradate when they go to the new team. There's actually, there are actually a couple positions in football where that do, doesn't happen, um, and that is the kickers. So the punters and the field goal kickers, their performance basically stays the same. And that's really interesting, right, because those are the guys that have the least interaction effects. I mean, you need a snapper, but that's basically it, right? Everything else remains roughly constant. So it, it's actually a fairly interesting case to demonstrate that point. So, yeah, building just by uh, bringing in superstars tends not to be the, the ideal way to do things. Right, because it's complex, right? It's exactly. Get more Com- when there's more interaction effects, whenever there's, when there's an organization or interaction effects that are contributors, major, major contributors to success, you have to be very, very careful about extrapolating performance from one organization to another. So uh, one concept you talk about in the book that I think is really relevant uh, to our to a lot of our audience and to this like modern economy that we live in, um, where everyone wants to be an information worker, they want to um, you know write the next big book, they want to start the next big blog or whatever, uh, is this idea of cumulative advantage. Uh, can you explain what that is and its connection to power laws and what is a power law? Yeah, and by the way, this is this is really difficult for people to wrap their heads around, and I'll tell you a funny story about it. Um, so a power law is a certain kind of a distribution of outcomes, and you know, without getting super technical, what you do is you, you plot one thing on the x-axis on a logarithmic scale, so the difference between each of the tick marks is the same percentage difference, right? And then you... Uh, put something on the y-axis, again, on a logarithmic scale. Again, each tick mark difference is the same percentage difference. Let me give you an example to try to, and, and, and to just give you an example to make it concrete. One of the classic power laws is the size of cities in the United States. So on the x-axis, you put simply their rank. So you put number one, number 10, number 100, number 1,000, those are the tick marks. And then you put the population, how many people live in each of those cities. And if you plot that, it turns out that it follows a straight line, a so-called power law. So basically, you can express it mathematically very simply with a simple power or exponent, right? So that's the basic idea. Cumulative advantage is this idea that um, essentially the strong gets stronger. So small advantages at the outset can lead to huge advantages over time, cumulative processes, and that there's uh, very difficult to predict which uh, um, particular good product or service is going to do that. So I'll give you one example, one story on this that I think one experiment I thought um, brought home this point really vividly. It was an experiment done by a number of sociologists at Columbia University called Music Lab. So this is a ostensibly about musical taste. They had 48 songs by unknown bands, right? So no one's ever heard of these songs or these bands. And they went to college students and they said, hey, we'd love love to hear your opinion about this music. So it's ostensibly about musical taste. So the the, uh, subjects go into the site Unbeknownst to them, by the way, 20% went into what they called independent condition. So you could see the songs, you're asked to rate them, you know, five stars, I love it, one star, I hate it, and download it if you really liked it. But the key was they could see what no one else did. So they're basically in the record store by themselves. The other 80% uh, went into 10% each into eight, so they call them social worlds, right? So these are almost like parallel universes. The initial setups are identical to the independent condition, but now you could see what others did before you. So you could see what songs they downloaded, you could see what songs they liked. And the question was, would the patterns of people preceding you affect what you said you liked and what you downloaded? And the answer was, absolutely. So just to be clear that the better songs, the independent conditions had a much better chance of success in the social world. So quality does carry something. But by and large, if you're in the top, say, quarter or top half of the 
the uh, you know in the independent condition, basically anything could happen. And there was there was one song I thought captured the whole experiment brilliantly. It was a song called Lockdown. It's number twenty six in the independent condition, right? So basically the definition of average out of 48 songs. In one of the social worlds, it was the number one hit. In another one of the social worlds, it was number 40, right? So in this alternate, one alternate universe, it's the top hit, right? So it's this cumulative advantage. What people did before you affect what happens next. And so, you know, how does that relate to cities? You might imagine that, you know, often people want to go where other people are. So there's this idea of a, a preferential attachment model that allows that uh, mechanism to take place. So I'll tell you, this, this is my funny story to wrap this up. So one of the uh, one of the big magazines asked me to write a little article um, on the heels of the book coming out about sort of this idea of cumulative advantage. So I was looking around at the time, and I thought, you know, what, what is the greatest example, current example, and it was Gangnam Style, right? That famous <laughs> song that right. I think now has two and a half billion downloads, right? So I started writing this thing. It's got like 500 million downloads, and I'm sort of into it a little bit. So I got 800 million downloads. You know, by the time I'm, I'm ready to submit, it's got like a billion do- downloads, right? So it's this incredibly popular thing. Um, and... Uh, I submit the article and I say Gangnam Style is a function of this communal advantage, right? It's it's a good song, but it's sort of caught on. And the editor writes back and says, you know, you don't seem to understand that Gangnam Style has got this, you know, sort of these incredible dance moves and it's great, <laughs> right? So in other words, what happens is once something's been successful, we attach this sort of impossibly great set of attributes to it without recognizing the incredibly forceful role of this cumulative uh, advantage. So it's a really, really big deal. Uh, the very last thing I'll say is um, I teach at Columbia Business School and every year we bring executives in and, you know, one of the executives I like to bring in comes from Time Warner. And, you know, they, I think, have the largest film studio in the world. They're one of the largest TV producers. And the guy basically said, look, we have enormous incentive to figure out what the future hits will be. And, and obviously, we're very serious about this. But he's like, we really don't know what's going to be a hit and what's not going to be a hit. So even the guys who have the most interest in getting this right, who have the most at stake in getting it right, don't really know what's going to happen. So again, you, you mentioned before sort of our, our, our desire to link causality or create narratives to explain outcomes. That's an area where we really, really tend to mess up. This cumulative advantage is really tricky. And again, if we replayed the tape of time, it's very unlikely that Harry Potter would be Harry Potter and Madonna would be Madonna and so forth, right? And it's hard for people to get their heads wrapped around that. Right. But you have uh, on your website, you have this great um, thought experiment where people can see with like the jars with like colored balls that I think perfectly explains cumulative advantage and how it can affect outcomes. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. It's called the Paul Your Earn model, and you know people should go to that. And the website is www.success-equation.com, and you'll see a bunch of these little models. And just and just play around with it. You just click, you just click on the thing and let it simulate over and over. And the basic idea is that some it's a jar. You can imagine a jar filled with marbles of different colors. And so we're going to say the quality is uh, is going to be indicated by how many marbles. So let's say there are five red marbles. That means the highest quality. Four blue marbles, less quality. Three yellow marbles, and so forth. And the model itself is you draw one out and then you match and then you put it back in. So if you draw a yellow one, you take another yellow, put it back in and so forth. So you do the simulation process, which actually is very simple, but not completely dissimilar to cumulative uh, uh, processes. And you can see that, again, the better skill tends to win more of the time. But there are a lot of cases where you see sort of the middling ones take off or even the, the, the lowest quality ones, again, because of these random uh, occurrences, sort of take off. So it's a fun way to, to, to visually get a sense of this, this notion of cumulative process. Right. And I imagine the Internet and social media has just compounded this idea of cumulative advantage in the business world and music or whatever. 
massive. And I think there's, you know, there's a whole, um, there's actually a very famous paper written about 35 years ago by a guy named Sherwin Rosen called The Economics of Superstars. And the argument he said was basically that technology has really um, accelerated a lot of these events. And it turns out, you think about it this way, you know, before, for example, phonographs or records or like that, so let's say 200 years ago, if you want to hear someone sing or hear music, you'd have to go to your local, you know, local venue, and the number two player was, you know, going to do almost as well as the number one player in a different community. But uh, now, because everyone can listen to recordings, you know, which great with great fidelity, you're going to basically, you, we can all avail ourselves of the very best in each field, right? So it's this really interesting uh, compounding factor, definitely. Right, and what's interesting too, you talk about in the book too, and I think this is good. I mean, I think it's good for people to understand because they kind of buffer some of the maybe the sense of failure they might have. There might be instances where there's two companies or two individuals who are equally talented, but for some whatever reason, one guy became the superstar because of this cumulative advantage and all this, this power law aspect. Exactly. I mean, the case we, we give sort of a thought experiment in the book of two, say, you know, graduate students and, you know, again, by luck or by, you know, a, a set of circumstances, one gets to a little bit of a better university as a professor than the other even if they're essentially identical. And then over long periods of time, the one that is at the better university may teach better students and have more access to resources and have more productive colleagues and get more grants and so forth. And at the end of the career, you'd look at the two and say, gee, this person, you know, person A seems to be much more capable than person B, whereas really it was the opportunity set that came along. And if you, you know, another way to think about all this is often success is a function of your skills times your opportunity set. And if opportunity sets uh, differ, um, even the same skill uh, will lead to very different outcomes. So it's really an interesting, very rich thought. Right. Uh, so, Michael, what, what should we do with this information? I mean, how, do we, how should we manage the role of luck in our lives? So it's a really great question. I mean, there are tons of aphorisms about luck, um, you know, preparation, you know, a, a lot, a, a luck is where preparation meets opportunity or the harder I work, the luckier I get. And, you know, and, and if you accept, them, accept our definition, our working definition of luck at the outset, those are actually not valid statements, right? And again, it's what's in your control, what's not in your control. Now, I like those aphorisms mostly because they encourage people to work hard and, and to prepare and so forth. And those are all things that clearly are very important and useful. So by my definition, um, you can't really change your luck, right? You can't improve your luck. You can manage it to some degree. And uh, a couple examples I give is uh, the first is in, in competitive interactions, and we talked about this just a few moments ago, but competitive interactions – the key is if it's a, if you're the stronger player, what you want to do is simplify the game as much as you can. And by simplifying the game, you uh, assure that your skill overwhelms that of your competitor. If you are the weaker player, what you want to do is complicate the game, right? Add dimensions to the game. And so a couple of uh, concrete examples, you know, in football, it would be, for example, introducing trick plays, right? So you're still going to be the weaker player, but the stronger team's not used to seeing certain formations or certain types of plays. In the world of business, it would be disruptive innovation. So rather than going toe-to-toe, uh, releasing products to compete with the incumbent, you're going to launch sort of these flank strategies that try to take advantage of weak spots. And then clearly in warfare, it's guerrilla tactics, right? You don't go toe-to-toe, you, you use guerrilla tactics to try to beat your enemy. So that's one strategy. 
The second one is really, I think what, what technology has allowed us to do today more than we've been able to do in the past is so-called A-B testing. So really what we're doing is trying to tease out causality more effectively. The great example of A-B testing is, uh, you know, you're an internet retailer or something, or even, even your website, right? You say, you know, which, which website will get people to engage more with the site, you know, site A or site B. And then you just randomly show different people A and B, and then whichever one tends to uh, encourage more engagement is the one you go to. So you're constantly testing A versus B to see what um, encourages certain types of behavior. So again, you're, you're teasing out causality. So those are a couple ideas. Taking one big step back, though, I think that this, this idea of understanding the contribution of luck and where things are on the so-called luck skill continuum, basically the contribution of luck, I think can really change your attitude and philosophy about different types of activities. And again, where it's all skill, you don't have to worry about the role of luck. But when you get to the all luck side, understanding that things like focusing on process versus solely outcomes become much more important and sort of having an attitude of equanimity toward luck. If, you, you know, if you've done all the things in your control successfully and you've had a bad outcome, you know, that's, that's how it goes. That's just a bad break, and you should just wake up tomorrow morning and, and uh, go out and do it again. Right. I love that idea of focus on process, like be a poker player. They have a system, they know what they need to do, and they're going to lose some. They know that, but they just accept it because they know in the long run, if they stick to the system, they'll likely come out on top. Exactly. And, you know, there are a lot of things, even in athletics, you know, you'd say, you think about many of the great sports franchises, many of them do have great players, of course, but many of them, as you point out, same as your poker example, they have great systems. And those systems, and they, and they often tell the players, rely on the system, right? Because if you do your job within the system, we will be successful. Now, it may not be successful every play or every game, but over long periods of time, we know that those good processes lead to better outcomes. And so there is, there is a bit of a faith in doing that. But again, we still struggle with this. You know, we tend to be very outcome focused because of our little interpreters in our minds, right? So, so you have to you have to be just sort of aware of that. And again, in some realms, skill is the dominant factor. So it's it's really again where where luck becomes a an important contributor to to the to the results we see. Right. Well, Michael, this has been a great conversation, and we just scratched the surface of the book. Um, but where can people learn more about uh, your book and your work? Um, thanks, Brett. It's fun. Um, Probably two things. One is michaelmobison.com, so first name, last name.com, and there's uh, references, uh, The Success Equation, as well as some other books. And then we've already talked on uh, talked about it, but I'll just reiterate, um, success-equation.com, which, as you pointed out, has a couple of little fun mental exercises. also has, by the way, a full bibliography of the book, so if any of the particular ideas we've talked about today or anything else in the book um, you know, uh, strikes your interest, you can typically dig into the original resources and get more details on it uh, and so forth. So try to give something um, fun for everybody uh, who goes to the site. Awesome. Well, Michael Mobison, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. My pleasure. My guest today was Michael Mobison. He's the author of the book, The Success Equation. It's available on amazon.com. Go check it out. Really fascinating book. Also check out his website, success-equation.com. He's got a lot of these probability games you can uh, play around with to see how uh, skill and luck are entwined together and how you can suss things out. Uh, It's a lot of fun to play with. Also check out the show notes at aom.is slash luck for links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. As always, I appreciate the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.